As we continue forward, we as a church have been engaged in the book of Habakkuk in the last two weeks. And Habakkuk is an interesting conversation. Um, this man is standing around examining his world. He's seeing the corruption. He un- he's seeing the, the display of injustice. He's seeing the immorality in the temple. He's seeing the problems. And min- many of us look around in our culture see very similar things, very similar frustrations. And so we started diving into a conversation about God's justice and God's judgment and how he works with these things. And, and one of those things we, we brought out was a bit of a fishing illustration last week. So I thought, hey, you know, since that was the beginning of the sermon, this is the end of it, we might as well go back to that. And this is my, um, this is my fly pole that I've taken up a couple of times. I showed it off last week. And, and one of the fun things is that not only can I whack you if you're really falling asleep, but is the, um, is the reality that this represents something very interesting to me. Um, up on the, here is, is a set of flies, and um, the interesting design and science behind all this fascinates me because these little hooks actually look, if from a distance, like they could be flies, if you, if you can even see it. And they're designed in such a manner as to attract the, the fish so that they begin to see it and, and want it. And so I, I, you take this out, and I've watched my brother-in-law do this while, he's, while I'm standing on the shore watching him in the middle of the river or the middle of whatever, and just casting it out, making sure that as this thing is getting, getting out further and further, it's landing and it's fluttering down. And I've watched as it's landed, and the fish goes like this. At first, the fish is like, you know, kind of sitting around, and he sees it, and so he lands it right in front of the fish, and the fish goes, ooh, what's that? It kind of hovers, and it goes away. And he kind of looks away and comes back and goes, ooh, ho, 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 that is a tasty morsel. He, that's not what he's really doing, but imagine it with me for a second. And it suddenly goes away, it comes back again, and he's going, oh, this is my lucky day. I can't believe it. Look at the size of that thing. That's, oh, that's going to be good. It gets closer, and I've seen him. They'll, they'll turn away like, no big deal, no big, I'm cool. And then they turn back, and then they sneak up, and then they strike. And right when they strike, you pull back, you set that hook, and suddenly at that moment, when he's going, ha ha, I've got it, I did get it, ow, you know, and it's being pulled out of the water. Because the whole thing about fly fishing is about how you land that fly just perfectly to look like a fly, because it's a setup. The fish doesn't know it's a setup, but it's a setup. And you got them. The second they snap at it, if you can set that hook, you've won that fish, you bring it in, and that fish is going to be your dinner. Now, there's a little difference between God and the fish, but the reality is that as we've been looking at the the conversation of God's judgment, as we've been looking at how God works, Habakkuk's been standing around asking some questions. And we're going to dive back into those uh, conversations with God in the second half of this message we started last week in the book of Habakkuk. So open your Bibles, if you will, to Habakkuk chapter 1. I want to show you guys how this setup kind of works together and what we're looking at. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12, and we're going to follow through. If, you've, if, if this is your first time with us, you're welcome to uh, grab out your Bible or your device and open Habakkuk. Um, if you're new to your Bible, then you want to realize if you're in the New Testament with normal names like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to go left. If you're in the Old Testament, you've got some like retro new names like Isaiah or something like that, you want to go right because it's in the area that you'd never name your kid and it's in those uh, one little spot called the uh, Minor Prophets. And so uh, right there, it's Habakkuk. It's kind of in the middle of those. Otherwise, you can just grab a Bible from under the seats. It's on page 785. And what we're looking at is, is a conversation. Again, Habakkuk's looked around. He's seen injustice. He's seen immorality. He's seen a massive problem in his community. He's going, God, what are you going to do about this? We're the people of God. What are you going to do? You love us. And God says, yes, I love you so much. I'm going to judge the evil with the Babylonians. And he's like, what? You're gonna, I'm going to come in. I'm going to use these guys. I'm going to crush them. And, and Habakkuk pretty much said, oh, okay, 
Now I got a different problem. Why would you let them, as we saw last week, you said, why would you let them judge us? I mean, they're, they're more wicked. Why would you let the wicked swallow up the righteous and destroy them? This doesn't make any sense. And why in the world would you give in to this? Like, you let them fish the ocean clean of all the nations, and then they bow down, and they start singing, Oh, fishing pole, oh, fishing pole, how lovely are your eyes. You know, something like that. And setting it down, and, and he's going, Why are you giving in to them? Why, why would you do this? I'm struggling. Those are his two questions. And last week, God said, now, hold on a second. I'm not lying. You wait for it. I'll prove to you my word comes true. Judgment's coming. Wait for it. But if you're going to have a right relationship with me, you need to walk in trust, is his response. Trust me in this. I've got this. Wait for it. Well, that's how we kind of ended it from there. And we began to look into that, that examination of that wait for it mentality. But he's going, God continues in the conversation. And he continues with this conversation about these people of Babylon. Now, Babylon was a massive, um, a massive empire that existed in the, six, the 600 to in the 500s BC. Started in the end of the 600s because it goes backwards. And so in the 500 BC, this place was massive. It ranged from the edge of India all the way to the Mediterranean Ocean into Turkey and down into Egypt. And so the entire Middle East was known as the Babylonian Empire at the time. And these guys were powerful. They'd marched around, sucked up all this land within 10 years which is pretty incredible in that time period. And they just kept on rolling. And they were so proud. God called them this way in verse 11. He says, they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. They were so successful, he says, he then keeps on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever, verse 17. And and suddenly when you land in chapter 2 and you get into verse 5, they are so successful, they are drunk on their success. Anybody had that kind of success? It's just like everything you touch turned to gold. Things were just rolling. It was like, I can't lose. Maybe it was a game, a basketball or something. You were just in the zone. And that's exactly what the Babylonians are feeling. They're in the zone. They've got this. They walk up to any, any, any nation and they wipe them out, knock them over. Oh, there's a city, take it. There's a city, take it. They were so cocky and so arrogant. They thought they were all that and they had it all down. They were drunk on their own success. And so in verse five, God begins. He says, moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man, who is never at rest, or an arrogant man is never at rest. Either one of those can work. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Sheol is death. It's the grave. It's like death. He he never has enough. He gathers for himself all the nation and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say? And what's interesting about this is he's starting off with a conversation about Babylon, and the way he describes Babylon is he says they're drunk with their own power. They are so overwhelmed by themselves. They're self-centered and greedy. Arrogant is the word he uses. Proud. It's all about them. They're the people. They are self-centered in their thinking. They are self-centered in their mindset. What's interesting about this is that he doesn't ever declare directly, this is Babylon. It's implied in the context, but the, the terminology is always general. He you, that kind, of con- that kind of conversation. And why it's that way is I believe that the prophet knows this just doesn't apply to Babylon. This applies to all who walk in a self-centered life. And what's interesting about it is that the self-centered life is something that God actually indulges to set you up. You think, what? In fact, somebody after first service came up to me. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm having a problem with this. God does not indulge the self-centered. He's a good father. He wouldn't indulge us so that he sets us up. And I say, time out. 
If you are a self-centered person and you think you're getting away with your sin, I want to warn you, success isn't always what it looks like. You think you're getting away with cheating people in your business. If you think you're getting away with the affair, if you think you're getting away with the viewing of that pornography, if you think you're getting away with the way that you're, you're manipulating you know, your, those situations in your home life, your community, or whatever, and you think you're having success, I want to warn you, you might be just a little fish looking at a fly. You might be going, oh, this is too good. And God's going, come on. You want that? I'll let you have that. You want that? I'll let you have that. Come on, have a little bit more. He'll let you go into yourself. He'll let you run with your, he'll let you run with your self-centeredness. He'll let you take off. And what he's doing is he's, he's letting you have just enough rope to hang yourself. To lead you to a place where you suddenly realize, hey, the judgment's coming. And we learned some stuff about judgment. And I need to point this out because it's going to show up again. And I'm not going to go back to the first sermon where we like talked all about judgment and what it is and how it works. And, but I want to remind us that judgment's reciprocal. What you give is what you often receive. And Jesus put it this way, judge not that you be not judged. Judge lest you be judged. We've all heard that. It's probably the most quoted verse in the American society today. And Jesus is getting at something here. He's saying, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, not by people, but by God. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. There's a reciprocation on the day of judgment. The way that you judge people and the injustice that you use is going to come back on you. In fact, it's throughout the Psalms and throughout the scriptures that you reap what you sow. In fact, other religions have seen this, and you'll find it in terms like in the Hindu religion called karma. They like to think of it in those terms of cycles. But really, the scriptures were saying it all along as, look, the way that you treat people is the way that you're going to be treated. You treat them well, you'll be treated well. You treat them poorly, you'll be treated poorly. And self-centered people struggle with not being judgmental. We struggle with not thinking it's all about us. We struggle not treating people rightly. In fact, He's going to get into this and he's going to develop this, but the pride is a dangerous thing. And it's interesting how scripture talks about this pride, talks about this self-centeredness. It says pride goes before destruction. Why do we need to be told this? Why do we need to be told a haughty spirit before a fall? Because proud and haughty people don't think they're going to fail. They don't think there's a cliff nearby. They think they're winning. They think they've got all the success. They think they're getting away with it. And the danger I want to warn us in is if you're a self-centered person, you think you're getting away with your sin, you're not. If you're a Christian and you think you're getting away with your sin, God's going to discipline. But he'll let you go so you'll hit the bottom. He'll let you go so that we'll wake up. So maybe this is a shot across your bow this morning. Maybe this is something for us to wake up with. But it's intentional. And this is what Habakkuk is getting at. Habakkuk is being told by God, look, I see Babylon. I know who they are. They think they've got it made. They look like they're winning, but it's a setup. They're going to come to their ending. Their pride is going to lead them to their fall. In fact, everybody they've been overwhelming, everybody they've been taking care of is going to rise up and taunt them. As verse 6 just said, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, and now he writes five songs. God lays out five different songs, each one a taunt of the proud, a taunt to the self-centered. And he starts with a simple word. He says the word, woe. And that's not like the Keanu Reeves, woe. Not that woe, okay? Different woe altogether. It's, the, it's actually the term, oi. 
And so you've ever heard, oy vey, you know, that term. We always think, that, oh, that's funny. Oy vey, whoa, it's me. You know, whoa is I'm doomed. Whoa is oy vey, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. For, permit me to use the vernacular that most of us would use. I'm screwed. That's what it's saying. I'm as good as dead. Oy vey, woe is me. This is bad. Five times God is basically saying the self-centered life leads to destructive ends. Leads to a judgment. It leads to destruction. It leads to problems. We should be crying out, oy vey, if we find ourselves stuck like Babylon in this pride and this self-centeredness. The first, and we're going to describe five different ways that it really begins to be a problem. The first, oy vey, the first woe, the first reality is that self-centeredness leads to greed. It leads to a kind of greed that doesn't care. The way that they put it is, woe to him, oy vey, oy to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake who will make you tremble? Then... You will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. There's that reciprocation. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. And so suddenly there's this reality. You brought violence to all these cities. You destroyed all these places. You made a mockery. You plundered them. And you're you building your empire, your home, your lifestyle off of how you treated others poorly. You've stolen their money. You've taken from them. You know, for Babylon, this is one thing. We're seeing this in our world again. ISIS is one of those who is taking from all these other people to use it to, to get more and to, to become broader and bigger. And, and don't we all sit around going, yeah, those people need to be stopped. And yet there are corporations that do similar things. And some of us will justify them. And some of us do those personal things. We pay people under the tax code, you know, under the table just to make sure we can get away with it, save ourselves a little bit of money. We want to get ahead, but we're taking advantage of somebody. We find our way forward by, you know, figuring out how to get the divorce done so we can go marry the other person. Because, hey, we'd, you know, I'm taking advantage of this situation. Find ourselves on Facebook, World of Warcraft or whatever, while you're being paid at work. You know the boss key and you're ready to turn it off in the second they walk in. But you're just taking money not doing your work. All of these things are forms of the same kind of taking advantage of others. Whether it's payday lenders, whether it's horrible levels of, of, of um, debt and things that we're taking from other people, whether it's the 2008 debacles, all this comes together in the same problem. That when we become self-centered, we'll do anything to make a buck. We'll, we'll, we'll manipulate things. We don't see the problem. Maybe you know someone like that. Maybe right now you're going, oh, I'm a little like that. But it's all to build this empire. It's all to make it larger as Babylon did. And the danger is that God's going to let you go. He's going to let you have it for a little while. Maybe just to wake you up. Maybe just to bring you to an end. Maybe just so your stock portfolio vanishes in a heartbeat because he's trying to wake you up. Because guess what? It's been a setup. He's trying to get your attention. He goes on. He says, woe is the next group. And he says that self-centeredness may lead to greed and this greed is a problem. But then what happens next is that self-centeredness leads to hoarding and protecting your wealth. That there's this reality. Suddenly you've got all this wealth. Well, what do I do with it? You've got to protect it. 
In fact, that's what goes on. He says in verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil for evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You've devised shame for your house by cutting off many people. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall. The beam from the woodwork respond. Fascinating reality. Babylon was very good at running around building up their house. Stole all this money, took all this stuff, plundered all these nations only to bring it back to their treasure trove in Babylon. And there in Babylon, they found themselves building the largest city fortress you've ever seen. In fact, it became one of the seven wonders of the world as he built his hanging, t- hanging gardens of Babylon. Anybody ever heard of the hanging gardens, right? This is that same guy. Nebuchadnezzar built such huge walls, hundreds of feet thick, he put his name on every single stone. A little bit of arrogance there. He could ride two chariots across the very breadth of the top. It was so powerful, people were like, there's no way to break through this impenetrable fortress. They were so confident that Nebuchadnezzar, as he got old, he left it in charge of one of his grandsons named Belshazzar. And Belshazzar, so confident these walls could protect them, so confident nobody would ever conquer the Babylonians. He got drunk one night in his treasure chamber in front of all of the, all of the instruments of God's, um, of God's temple that they had taken and uh, Daniel's there and, you know, pronounces woe upon the nation. And uh, Belshazzar thinks this is ridiculous. And yet what he didn't know is that night the Medes had crept up. They had looked at this fortress. They had examined every nook and cranny to figure out a way forward. And they discovered one weakness. The river that they got the water supply ran right under the, these giant fortified walls. And so they stopped the river up in the north, marched their army under the walls where the river should have been, right into the heart of Babylon, and took it over without a fight. You wonder what Habakkuk is talking about, that the the stone will cry out from the wall, the beam from the woodwork will respond. You're going to be ashamed. You you think you fortified your life. It's not going to be going on. You're going to lose it. This is a prediction that came true. And basically what's going on in this picture is here's Babylon trusting their wealth to protect them. How many of us are trusting our wealth to protect us? But money comes and money goes. It doesn't stick around. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul was saying when he addresses this very issue. He says, as for the rich in this present age, and look, Compared to the world, we're pretty rich. Amen? If you think about it, you look at it, you look at the majority of human beings. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be what? Haughty, which means proud, arrogant, self-centered. It's all about you. Look at me. I'm all that in a bag of chips. Nor do they set their hopes, nor to set their hopes on uncertainty of riches. Wealth comes and wealth goes. It's not going to be there when they put you in the ground. Wealth isn't going to be there when the thief broke in and took it. Well, it's not going to be there when the IRS comes knocking on your door. Oh, sure, I'll have tax lawyers and all this stuff. I'll be great. Well, it's not going to be there when you want to save your marriage. God's there. God's in every scenario. He's in the jail cells. He's there in the grave. He's there at every moment of your life. And so no wonder it says, but trust God. Don't put your trust on the uncert- or your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but put your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. But I think we struggle with this still. There are many of us in, our, in this church that get upset when I talk about money. I, I get the strongest remarks when we talk about money. Like, how dare you talk about money? That's our money. All this stuff will come out. 
Every year, whenever we've talked about money, it comes out. And I'm just saying this to bring it up. I'm going to say, are you trusting your money to give you the security? Are you afraid that it will go because it is your strength and your security? This is telling us, don't do that. Do we trust God? Now, that sounds like a preacher's ploy to get money out of my pocket. No, 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 no. I don't care where your money goes. Let's be honest. I believe we support what we believe in. I believe you put your money where your heart is. The question is, is your heart wed to your money? That's what I care about. Don't wed it to your money. Wed it to Christ. In that, there's freedom. But these people otherwise will constantly seek for self. They'll protect. They will build every apparatus, have every way possible to defend against their money. We're only, but you're only a 2008 away. You're only a lawsuit away from that money being gone. And you go from the heights and the joys of luxury to the bankruptcy court. Don't put your love into money. Don't trust it. Realize it's a woe. Third woe, self-centeredness leads to devaluing people with violence. Here we have it here. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. And you're like, what's this? He starts off with this. Here's a group of people who've used violence, bloodshed, to build a town and iniquity, sin, to build a city. And what he's saying is this. Towns and cities in the ancient world were different. Today, you build a town, you're like, oh, there's a town. Nobody builds towns anymore. But in the ancient world, if you could build a town, you oftentimes named it after yourself or your son because a town or a city named after you was a legacy. It was your glory. Babylon marches into all these cities, taking them over, renaming them after their own gods, renaming them after themselves. And here are these towns. You've heard of Alexandria? That's because Alexander the Great had all kinds of towns named after him. They're his, they're his legacy, his glory. And God says, you know what? If you're all into sending out your glory and you're going to use violence, watch out. I'm going to turn your entire life's work into nothing. Just for fire. It's going to be like dust. It's going to burn down. And, and that's a warning to us who like to use uh, roughshod tactics as bosses. We want to push people around and be the jerk boss using our strength and our power. That's a warning to some of us who are struggling with violence in our home because you want your children to be better, but you find yourself using your fist or your words to get your way because your name has been devalued. That's the ways of gangs. They want, they want respect, so they're going to use violence to get it. And God says, that's the kind of stuff I will eviscerate. It'll vanish. That family will dissolve. Those friendships will be gone. Those lives are better to cry out to yourself, woe is me, I'm doomed. And I want to call you that God's saying, this isn't the route. Uh, He may let you have success. He may let your gang thrive. He may let your department move. He may let things happen because you're out there, you're taking things. But remember, it may just be a setup. Ready to pull you in to wake you to what you're doing. Fourth woe that he gets into is this. Woe to the self-centered. It leads to demoralizing others. Oops, that's five. We'll go back. Right here in verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drunk or drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. This is very clear, the association of Babylon. They would cause these nations and these kings to get drunk, and then they would put them in promiscuous situations to mock them and laugh at them as a part of sport. 
We think, who does that? We do lots of stuff like that in our culture with the sex slave trade and things like this. And then we photograph it and send it out, on the, out, into the, uh, out into the internet world for other people to consume. This is not unknown. That the self-centeredness is because it's about you. It's about what you can gain. And he tells them this, verse 16. You'll have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand, which is his cup of wrath, will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of men and the violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. So he's looking at them saying, you saw how you took out Lebanon and all, even the wild animals that were in the area? All that kind of destruction is going to happen to you. This is a reciprocation. For the violence that you've caused, all the things. But I want you to hear something. It starts with how dare you demoralize human beings. Every human being is made in the image of God. And if you've been in the position as a junior higher or a high schooler and you've gone through the punishing um, absolute horror of being told what you are and how you are and been mocked and burdened and broken down as I've, I faced plenty of times and many, I mean, many people who are bullied and made fun of, it's a horrible situation. Many of those bullies are often being put in that position by their parents, being called names, being pushed down, being destroyed. If we're using mocking attitudes, if we're just mocking each other, we're devaluing them in the image of God. God never intends for that. Besides, we all need to take a lesson from Bill Gates. The nerds rule the world. Watch who you demoralize, right? The reality is that we all find ourselves in a place where we're so self-centered, we have to put ourselves higher to make ourselves feel better. And God says, that's not how we act. That's not how we respond. Not in the work world, not in the home life, not with friends. And so he says, watch it. Watch it. It's a woe. Last one is this, that self-centeredness lies to you. And says you're a God maker. We go, <laughs> Greg, that, that's just ridiculous. But hold on, before we dive into this, let's read what it says. Verse 18, what profit is an idol when its maker is shaped in a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation. He makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake! And to a silent stone, arise! Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath in it at all. And an interesting reality here is our culture doesn't struggle unless you're over in the, over off the 71 at the Hindu temple where they got lots of idols floating around. But we don't typically run around making idols out of things, you know, literally hand carving things, setting them in our houses and going, oh, we love you. You know, we don't do that. Our culture is like, we have us who sophisticated with that kind of garbage. <laughs> yeah, we are all, as we found out earlier this year or earlier last year, in our spiritual growth campaign, we're all idol-making factories that our hearts set things up to worship all the time. We are all creatures of worship. We must worship something. And so it may be our wealth. It may be our success. It may be our spouse. It may be family. It may be an ideal. But when it starts to not help us, we start to get angry. And what we're all deceived in is that we do this and we think we don't have other gods. But the truth of the reality is we're even more sophisticated than that. Most all of us in this room struggle with God making. And the God we king, or the God we make as king is ourselves. 
How often in those conversations with money have I heard people say, that doesn't apply to me? Even though it did. How often in a rebuke on sexuality or how often on a rebuke about the way that we treat each other, how often on a rebuke on on various things that the scripture's giving, not from me, but it's clearly the text, have people said, oh, that was cool. So-and-so needs that. I don't need that. Even though it was plain to the spouse, yes, you do. Because they were doing the all, all, all service long. The reality is anytime we step up and we start to say, I know better in this, than this book. We've made ourselves the king. We've made ourselves God. We're the judge of God's words. We're the ones who get to stand there and say, I know the criterion for truth. I will set the criterion for what is true. This doesn't hold up. That's God making. It's no wonder it says that it lies to us. How often has our own thinking led us in such horrible places? Morally, physically, emotionally, relationally, it messes us up. Because we lie to ourselves. We're not gods. We were born. We didn't exist prior to that. And so God looks at this and he says, you, you want to be gods? You want to go for yourself? You want to have your own way? You want to be self-centered? Okay, I'll let you. In fact, this is how it puts it in Romans. Claiming to be wise after they've rejected God, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Therefore, what did God do? He gave them up to their desires, their lusts, their greeds of their heart to impurity. He gave them up. He, he said, okay, fine, go for it. I'll let you have it. Goes on in verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Okay, you still didn't hear me. I'll let you go even further. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up. He says, fine, you still don't see me, even though you're seeing the consequences, even though the struggles are happening, have fun. When God gives you up, he's setting you up in hopes of one thing that you would hear this, that that self-centered kind of living doesn't help. It's destructive. It's a woe. And he calls us to something else. What does he call us to? He already told us. It was back here in chapter 2 in verse 4. He says that the righteous, those who are connected with God, not those who are self-righteous. Don't hear those two terms the same. Those who are actually right before God, that God looks at and says, that's my guy. They only live by faith. Not by a bunch of works, not by a bunch of standards. They live by trust. They have to trust in God, trust in his work. And so what I want to say is the Yahweh-centered life, that's the God-centered life, the God of the Bible-centered life, it leads to sharing in glory. Maybe some of you noticed I skipped the verse here in verse 14. In chapter 2, verse 14, after he's just told them, hey, your town of glory isn't going to work, it says to him, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. I love this verse. My favorite verses. And what he is saying is, look, my glory is going to cover the world. Everybody's going to know me. Everything is going to surround. This message is going to go out and beyond to every single place. Their glory is going to be burnt up. It's going to disappear. My glory is going to surround you like water in the ocean. And the beauty of this is that great glory isn't just God's, it's shared. Jesus put it this way on his final night as he's praying for his disciples. He talks to the Father and says, The glory that you have given to me, I have given, or the glory, glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. God just said he wants to share his glory with you. 
this is his glory, his amazing, his, uh, his, his capability, his power, all that he's accomplished, all that he will do. And see, we get this. Because right now, some of us are checking our watches going, what time is it get the game? I got to get home to the game. Come on, Greg, speed this up. We got to get home to the game. Because your team's playing and your team is going to be eliminated or succeed today and move on to the big game. February's big Super Bowl game. When that huge Super Bowl game hits and now all the, all the men collide and the pigskin flops around and finally at the end of it, a victor will rise. And of that victory, all the people will scream and shout and glory is being shown. And suddenly they will select one man out of all the NFL from the Super Bowl and he will be crowned MVP. And that MVP guy will receive his trophy and he will stand before the great masses and he will look at them and he will say, I want to thank my coach because he made this happen. I want to thank my team. We couldn't have done it without them. The team's going to go, yeah, you're the MVP. And he's going to, I love the crowd. And all the crowd's going to go, you're the MVP. And I love my city. And the whole city's going to be going like, we got the MVP. Everybody be screaming and shouting, and it's all this mayhem and glory, and they're going to go home, they're going to throw this huge parade, and everybody in the city's going to go, oh, we won, we won, we won. What'd you do? <laughs> Who's this we we're talking about here? You live in Southern California going, we won, because you don't live there. You're my, man, my team lost this week. What'd you do to lose? I didn't shift on the couch at the appropriate moment. <laughs> And so the wind didn't blow in the exact way and the field goal went left. No, the reason we say we is because we're bound up in the glory that's been shared by the MVP and the winning team in the city that shares the glory. And Jesus, the MVP, died on the cross and whooped death, whooped sin. And he looks at everybody and says, hey, guys, I got something to share with you. You can go with your self-centered glory. That's fine, a little drip of stuff that's going to disappear in less than a hundred years. Or you can join in an internal glory that I'm giving to you that has no strings attached. I died on the cross to bear judgment, to take that away. All the stuff we did in our self-centered lives, he took it from us. If we're willing to receive what he's given to us, the gift of his glory. And he pours it out and we get to share it. And it's so much glory, it fills the whole earth like water fills the sea. It's no wonder then that the whole thing ends in verse 20 where it says, but the Lord, this God that we're talking about, this one who sent Jesus to die on the cross to bear our sin, where the wicked judged the righteous man and that righteous man saved us, the Lord is in his holy temple. He's the only one seated there in judgment. Let all the earth keep silent before him because the bottom line is every single one of us, if we desire to see him in his face, if we reject his glory, we'll stand before him. And if we reject his glory he's given to us in Jesus, we will stand before God and he in his perfectness, he will line up everything that we've done, every heart condition, everything. And here's our response. Here's our defense to it. We're not going to be able to say, I've got all this good I did. He doesn't judge that. The righteous live by trusting God and what he's given us. We're going to say, I've got all this good. No, he's going to lay it all out. And our response is going to be silence. What do you say when he's got us pegged? But praise God, he loves you so much that he doesn't want us to face him on that day of judgment. He gave you his son Jesus to share the glory with you and not the judgment. What holds you back? What holds us back is a self-centered life. We have to humble ourselves. Maybe today that's what you need to do. It's a good, good thing to be humble. 
And God loves you and longs to give you the opportunity to share in his glory. Would you bow your heads with me? And maybe this is your opportunity right now to receive that gift. I want to give you that chance just by putting your hand up. You're saying, that's me. I need to be forgiven of that sin. I need to receive that glory. You know you've been living on the self-centered side of life and it's one day you're going to stand silent. God doesn't want you to have that. If that's you, it's your chance to respond to God. By putting your hand up, you're just letting me know and I want to help walk you through a prayer. Maybe he set you up for this moment. He shot across your bow to wake you up and now he's saying, I want to forgive you. If that's you, just right where you're at, you can take this second and receive and just receive what Christ has done for us. The way you do that is right at the beginning. Just kind of take the opportunity to um, confess to God some of the things that you've done. You're not going to be able to get through all of them and he just wants to see your heart is open to being sorry. The next move is simply a turn away from that. It's called repentance, where you turn from the old life. You turn to God. Ask him to take your sins from you. Ask him to put those on Christ who's willing to take them. Then ask him to give you his glory, to give you what it needs to be with him. Let him know you trust him. Then ask him to come into your life and lead you through the rest of it. As your leader, as your king. And God, for those in this room who are making that commitment to you, working through that process of confession and repentance and receiving you, I ask that you would make yourself real to them. Father, for those who still have questions, I pray that they would be able to seek and find answers. You give them the diligence and the energy to do so. And God, for the rest of us, if we're maybe struggling with a sin, help us to confess now to get right with you and to abandon those sinful things that you wouldn't have to discipline us. And help us to walk after you and not after our self-centeredness. Thank you for this opportunity we've had just to get into your word. Pray you bless all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.